Welcome to the Pod 20, and my guest this week is Rob Goldstone, the host of a podcast called An Englishman In. Rob Goldstone is an Englishman in Compton. My British listeners will be all too familiar with the beloved 1960s children's series, which centered around a make-believe land called Trumpton, where time moves steadily, sensibly, never too quickly, never too slowly. Today, we live in a different kind of Trumpton, where it seems every day time moves unsteadily, foolishly, and always too quickly. Rob Goldstone. Now, he's the bloke who sent the most famous email in the world. The email that became part of what was known as Russiagate. Rob will be on to tell us all about that soon. Saruti Bala is on the show from Red Handed. She'll tell us about the data she tracks about her podcast and how she uses it. We'll check in with the film critic Anna Smith. She'll talk about the film star that was the most difficult to interview. Seattle radio personality B.J. Shea will talk about how he got his start in broadcasting and the Hollywood scriptwriter Ken Levine will talk about his other life as a baseball announcer. But first this news. In an effort to stop the spread of this show, if you're in the northeast of England, you can't listen to it in pubs and restaurants after 10pm. I'm Graham Mack, and the Pod 20 is heard on Podcast Radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. At number 20, it's Sword and Scale, a true crime podcast covering the dark side of humanity. At 19, an Englishman in from Rob Goldstone. Rob, you were involved with Russiagate because you sent an infamous email. What exactly happened? It's my, uh, it's my least favourite subject. <laughs> um, but the only so, one that anyone ever wants to talk the only about. The cares about. Yeah. Um, so basically, I, you know, I had got to know Donald Trump and his son a little bit because I was managing a Russian pop star named Emin. And in doing so, we ended up doing uh, the Miss Universe contest at Emin's venue that he owned in Russia. And so we got kind of friendly, I suppose you would say, with the Trumps. And a year or two later, he now famously called me and asked if I would mind calling the Trumps to set up a meeting with the Trump, somebody within the Trumps, who was running for president, we may add, at that time, and a well-connected Russian attorney whom his father had met that day and who had some kind of damaging information on the Democrats. And I was shocked because, first of all, Emin had never taught politics with me ever. We taught music, he played video games, he was a bit crazy but we'd never talk politics. So I tried to, as any journalist would push him for a little bit more information. And I asked him what it was about, what it meant. And he said, why do you care? It doesn't matter. You don't have to go to the meeting. You don't have to report on the meeting. Can you just get the meeting? And I pushed back a couple of times. uh, And at which point, I don't know if you've had this, but there comes a time when you know your client that there's no point in pushing anymore. You can either say yes, you can say maybe, or you can say no and perhaps look for a new job. 
what I did say to him was that no good could come of this. And that was based on the idea in my mind that we were wasting a favor with a man who could become the president of the United States for some random attorney, according to him, that was some friend of his father. And that's why I said that. A lot of people thought I said it because of the gravitas of what was contained within the ask. It wasn't. It's because selfishly I thought, if Donald Trump becomes president and we're a bit friendly with him, I know where your next video will be filmed and it's a big white house. Now, the, the content of the email seems to be the problem right it, it I, i've got it in front of me it says emin now so this is the email you sent to donald trump jr and donald trump jr's official title during the campaign what was that was he he was he wasn't the camp he wasn't running looking after the campaign was he that was the other fella he was kind of like the unloved son <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a title he right was okay donald trump's son but obviously, he was, he was, but obviously it's his dad yeah yeah and you you said Emin just called and asked me to contact you with something very interesting the crown prosecutor of Russia and we'll get back to that phrase the crown prosecutor of Russia met with his father Aras who is a, a Moscow based developer tried to partner with Trump years before that anyway he says this morning in a meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. That right. that was a, a puffed up version of, of what you had, wasn't it? It was a puffed up version of the truth and it was a puffed up version of a half truth because Emin wouldn't give me all the information. So what he told me when I said, well, who is this attorney? He said, a prosecutor who's well connected. So when I hear well-connected, I was a journalist, I'm a publicist. Well, she's not connected to the local scouts or the local <laughs> Aldi. She's, in my mind, connected to the Kremlin. She's a prosecutor. The word crown prosecutor is very interesting. So because I'm told that she's a prosecutor, to me, with my British hat on, I call prosecutors crown prosecutors because it's the crown prosecution. As anyone who knows history will know, there hasn't been a crown in Russia since 1917. So there isn't a crown prosecutor. What I should have said is he met with a crown prosecutor, not the. Because even though there wasn't a the, what the media took that to mean was a man who is in fact the prosecutor general of Russia, who they assumed I was talking about. Well, I've never heard of that man. I just meant that she, in effect, was what in the States we call a federal prosecutor and what in England you would call a crown prosecutor, meaning they prosecute people, they don't defend people. Now, provide documents and information. Well, if you have information, as Emin told me, which was potentially damaging to the Democrats, you must have a bit of paper, you must have some documents, but he never told me there were documents. I just was like, there's documents, there's paper. If there isn't, who cares? But you decided and, you decided to interpret that, or at least in the email, correct. incriminating that could incriminate yeah. Hillary. So it was that much was heavier than the worst part about that. No, no, that was the worst <laughs> part. So the idea was that this information, whatever it was that this lawyer had, was in some way damaging to the Democrats. Now again. I did work for The Sun for a while. If it's damaging to the Democrats, 
The only Democrat that anyone cares about in the Trump world is the one who's running against him, who's Hillary Clinton. But I have on many occasions apologized for only one thing, which is it had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. And my email sound, makes it sound like it incriminates something she has done. What it really does was incriminate these people that the lawyer for donating to her campaign. So the words were really twisted the wrong way around. But I've said that from the beginning, that wasn't my intention. If I had one regret, it would be to take Hillary's name out. Because if Bernie was running, it would have said Bernie Sanders. If Boris Johnson was running, it would have said Boris. It was about the party. I interpret it as Hillary, because again, I'm a publicist. So the trigger for me is, you need key words to get people's attention. Hillary will get the attention. Democratic National Convention, maybe they won't read. The intention with this email was to get Donald Trump Jr.'s attention enough to read the email, but see what I put at the end, which was, but maybe you should speak with Emin directly about it first. Now, that, that bit hasn't been as publicized as the rest of the email, has it? Especially because what has been publicized is Don Jr.'s response, <laughs> which was, if it's what you say it is, I love it. But he also said, I agree. I should speak to Emin about it. Can you set that up? I then set up that call in a series of emails, which have all been made public, but which the media ignored. Those two spoke, and I never thought about it again. Because if you think about it, why would I care? Even if, for two reasons, if I'm right about everything I've supposed in this email, they will have spoken about it. If I'm wrong, equally they will have spoken about it. So once they agreed to speak, and more importantly, once they did speak, I didn't care how puffed up this was, because two human beings have spoken to each other, so I assume they speak about the words that they're both copied on in the email. And the idea was to get a meeting. So really, you did your job. You got them to want a meeting, and you set the meeting up. So you were really right. only a fixer, a middleman, really. I mean, you've been accused of being a Russian spy. Yeah, I was Putin's <laughs> puppet. But interestingly enough, which is lovely, which interestingly enough, I was also accused of being Hillary's puppet. A lot of people think I set this up on behalf of the Democrats to discredit Trump ultimately when this would come out. What's interesting is, as I've testified on numerous occasions, both on Capitol Hill and to Mueller, I wasn't pro-Trump, I wasn't pro-Hillary, I was pro my client. So all I was trying to do was do my job to a billionaire client who by the very nature of that word makes them hugely demanding. They're not used to having people say, oh, I couldn't do that, or no. And by the nature of the job I did, I was his manager. I wasn't just his publicist. We were 24 hour a day. We talked eight hours a day about nonsense. It's just another ask. It was an annoying ask, but it didn't set off a, a bell. A lot of people go, didn't you know it was wrong? And what I say is, because just so that your, your viewers, your listeners understand, I was told by the Mueller team, you can write whatever you want in an email. We're not saying your email was wrong. Their willingness to accept what potentially was foreign interference is what could be wrong. So they said, as long as you don't threaten to kill somebody in email, do whatever, you can say whatever you want. 
the intent to receive it was what was being examined. So when people say to me, as many people do, how could you not know it was wrong to offer this? Well, I grew up in Manchester. I know nothing about this. The chairman of the Trump campaign was in the meeting. You would think he knows something about American legal system as it relates to politics. You would yeah. hope. Actually, yeah. you wouldn't hope because he's in jail. I think they just let him out for COVID, Paul Manafort, but he was jailed. So maybe he didn't know either. The thing that when I first read it, I thought this all seems very, very suspicious and I'm not sure if I'm buying your story. Now, talking to you, I see exactly what's going on. And to give it some context, that first line of your email that said, Emin just called. So he's a pop star or from Azerbaijan or, or Russia. Yeah, he's from Azerbaijan. He lives in Russia. They all, Trump, Donald in particular, was already very fond of him because of the dealings you'd had with Miss Universe. Do you want to just talk us through that so that it makes more sense? Because on the face of it, it looks like, well, this pushy British promoter has tried to set up a meeting with high-ranking officials from the, the Trump campaign were in it. Uh, you know, how does a guy like that do that? That doesn't sound... It doesn't sound like that's how things work. Yet, just give us a little bit of background about the relationship that Donald Trump had with Emin and how that came about via Miss Universe. So, so you're exactly right, and it does sound bizarre. It's a good word <laughs> to most people. Um, so back in 2012, I began managing Emin, and one of the things I wanted to do, because he'd grown up in the States, he lived in London part of the time, as well as in Moscow, was to internationalize his music. And I knew we needed some global platforms. And it just so happened that I happened to know someone who had been named Miss Universe. And we needed a beautiful woman for his video. And I said, well, why don't I ask her? She's called Diana Mendoza. I said, why don't I ask her? And I asked her, I said, would you like to be in his video? She said, no. I said, thank you very much. And she said, but I'm happy to connect you with the Miss Universe organization and maybe they can help. She did. I spoke to the president of Miss Universe, who was very nice. And she said, come in, have a meeting. And I said, well, Emin's going to be here in a couple of weeks. We'll both come in. And we went in and he's extremely charming and funny and whatever. And so we had a great meeting. But it ended up not being about his video because we talked about Emin suddenly said, where are you doing this year's contest? And they said, we haven't locked down a location. He said, what about Moscow? And I should point out Emin and his family are like the Trumps of Russia. They own a lot of retail and commercial developments, including one of the best concert halls or performance venues in Moscow. And so they said, well, we have thought about Russia before. It's full of red tape. It never happens. And at which point, Paula Sugar, who's the head of Miss Universe, said, I even went to look at this venue uh, a year or two back called Crocus City Hall. We could never get dates. It was never open. And Emin smiled and looked at me and said, well, you should just tell her. And I said, well, he owns it. So um, it was kind of like, oh. And he said, well, why don't we just do it there? And it was as simple as that. It went on from there. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because Donald Trump was a co-owner of Miss Universe. He owned it with NBC TV. And so it was suggested that we all meet again in a month in Las Vegas. And at that meeting would be Donald Trump and Emin would bring his father, Araz, who ran this billion dollar empire. 
And they'd have like a hello, how are you, and sign a contract, and they would announce on stage that night at Miss USA that Moscow would be the host. And that's how I got to know Donald Trump, and that's how Emin got to know Donald Trump. And even though it's been written that I've been friends of the Trumps for years, I mean, I've literally been written about as if I am their long-lost adopted son. I mean, it's unbelievable how people have described me. I've met Donald Trump either five or six times, and I met his son, Don Jr., twice. Right. And I've met you once. Yeah. So you're halfway there. (laughs) But the thing that really connected them was when was in Las Vegas, wasn't it? Yeah, they really bonded. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. So even though uh, Emin's family were about, according to Forbes magazine, the 54th or 53rd richest family in Russia, when they appeared in the Trump Hotel in in, uh, Las Vegas, I happened to be in the lobby and Trump bellowed across the lobby, look who's come to see me, the richest family in Russia. Now, he knew as well as everyone else, they were the 53rd. But that doesn't bother Donald Trump. When you're in his presence, you're the richest family. Where they seemed to bond was he invited himself to a dinner that night that Emin was giving for his friends and family. And it was a real cast of characters. It was interesting. And I was organizing it. And I was the one that got the call from Trump's uh, security assistant, Keith, who said, um, Mr. Trump would like to come to dinner. Where is it? And I, of course, told him, he goes, is that OK? I said, yeah, absolutely fine. And I hung up and I called Emin and he was like, what? And I said, you, you obviously made an impression. Donald Trump's coming to dinner. And he goes, OK, I have two requests. One, you deal with it. And B, you sit between Trump and I. And I was like, OK. So we go down for dinner, we have dinner. And there was a moment, which I think is what you're referring to, where they, to me, they bonded, where Trump stopped the conversation, said, Emin, I have a question for you. If I was to take a million dollars off the cost of putting on, of licensing this show, Miss Universe, to you and your family, would you tell me if you've slept with any of the contestants? And everyone's like, ha, 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 how funny. And Emin, cool as a cucumber, said, that's really interesting. Mr. Trump, he always called him Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, I'll pay you an additional $5 million if you tell me if you've ever slept with any of the contestants. And there's this silence, and Trump laughs and goes, should we just drop the deal? And it was funny, because I was like, there you go. There's a bonding made in frat boy heaven. (laughs) They were like two silly frat boys that had out, not shocked, but you know what I mean. They'd out shocked the table. And from then on, they were friendly. We went out to a nightclub afterwards. Trump again said he'd like to come. Uh, It was a a place called The Act, which the equivalent in England would be The Box. Uh, It's a sort of sexy burlesque nightclub. It's supposedly artistic in its design. And, you know, there were acts at that club where people simulated peeing on each other. A lot has been written about the fact that perhaps that's where the rumor of the pee tape comes into it. Um, And they really got on well so well that he wouldn't leave. So the entire evening I had Emin in my ear going, get rid of him, when's he going home? And all I remember saying to Emin was, I'm British, so let me explain. This is royal protocol. 
think of him as the queen. You don't move till he moves. And we stayed and he stayed a couple of hours. And the second he left, we all left. And that was it. After that, friends, when Emin would come to New York, maybe three or four times, he would say, let's go and see Mr. Trump. Trump was always very gracious. He always found time for us. It was a 10 minute visit, perhaps. And on one of those occasions, I remember two very old, three. On one occasion, he was listening to rap music when we appeared. And I walked in, he goes, you're in music. Look, I've got this platinum disc. And I looked and he goes, yeah, this, is, this song, it's called Donald Trump. And it's got 90 million views on YouTube. And I said, I would just suggest you listen to the words of that song. And we all laughed. And he said to me, I don't care about the words. It's got 94 million views on YouTube. He didn't care about the words. That plaque was on his wall. Another time we went in, we'd been in this windswept, it was raining. And he looked at me and he went, there's something weird with your hair. And I said, if we're going to have a hair debate and one of us loses, it isn't me. And he laughed because that's Donald Trump. He's like, and then the final time was a few months before he announced his run for president. And he told Emin, I said, I'm running for president. And we were like, wow, that's amazing. And Emin was like, you know, I, 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 that really is incredible. We congratulated him on the way out. We got to the bottom in Trump Tower and we both said the same thing. You know, he's going to win. And we each said, well, there's no question of it. And then Emin said to me, and neither of us asked him which party he's running for. And I said, because it doesn't matter. He'll win anyway. <laughs> and we both believed from that minute that he had a certain way. I believed America has become a bit of a reality show as a nation. And who better to be the reality show president than Donald Trump? I want to find out more about Donald Trump soon, Rob. Rob Goldstone, the podcast is called An Englishman In, and it's at number 19 this week on the Pod 20. At number 18, Law, the bi-weekly podcast about dark historical tales, because sometimes the truth is more frightening than fiction. At 17, and that's why we drink, murder and the paranormal finally meet, and that's why we drink. At 16, Red Handed, the true crime podcast presented by Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. Saruti, I know you like to crunch the numbers and get plenty of data on your podcast. I particularly am just absolutely obsessed with data, constantly. Okay. I want more data. If I could get more of it, I would love to. Um, but at the moment, what we do know is 80% of our listeners are women. Majority are actually in the US. Yeah, so, I got the feeling from listening to it that you you kind of you over explain things for US listeners now and again yes, in case they're yes. not picking up on the the, the British. It's got um, to be done, I think. Otherwise, I think you just risk alienating what is our majority listener base, which is the US. And yeah. so, sixty percent of our listeners also come from the US, um, and about twenty percent also come from the UK. We've got really good uh, numbers in the UK and Ireland, which is fantastic to see because you know it's it's our home crowd. We want we want more people in the UK listening to podcasts. That is something that we really really want to advocate for and grow. And then after that, it's like Australia, Canada, and then mainland Europe and then we have quite a few listeners in Asia as well but it's a bit more fragmented there so majority is US which is uh, not wholly surprising yeah it is uh, they were a little bit ahead of the curve on podcasting I'm not sure yeah. why I, I wonder if it was because when podcasting first started going a lot of the British podcasts were dominated by the BBC 
Yes. Mind you, having said that, in the US it was PBS. It did a you know, pretty this good job true. of getting it out there yeah. as well. So maybe that, I don't know what the thing was, but they just seemed to take to it and get it and understand it quicker and, and, and better than we did at the very beginning. I think it's evening out now. But, you're uh, really you're you're so right i think uh, i don't know the answer for, as to why but uh yeah it was just i think following on from particularly serial which seemed to be the yeah. the thing that really kick-started podcasting as a craze the u.s are just so much further ahead i do agree with you that it is evening out but i remember when i first started my podcast um with hannah i was still working and i was working in a, in the city i was working in london i was working with the average age of my company or my team was probably about 25. people were like what's the podcast yeah when i would tell them that this is what i was doing on the side and i was shocked because i was like you weren't meant to be listening you're meant to be the audience and you're asking me what a podcast is like yeah i really hope that we see that that continued growth in the uk with podcasting because when i do get people like my friends into podcasting they're blown away they're like what do you mean there's hours and hours and hours of fantastic content that i can get for free on any topic i want and i'm like yeah it's there. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's pretty easy to get now as well with the um, well, the Apple one on the iPhone is is pretty easy. I don't know yeah. what it's like, what the Android experience is like, but it's got to be getting easier, isn't it? I hope so. And I think now that you have um, sort of more players entering the space, like we see Spotify making huge moves towards like uh, really Joe dominating. Rogan. Goodness me! Yes, Joe Rogan. Hundred million, um, they reckon. It's just, I, I never tire of telling people that fact, all of my friends. I'm like, do you know how much Joe Rogan signed for that exclusive deal with Spotify? Um, and other podcasts too, like I love Last Podcast on the Left. Um, they were the ones that Hannah and I really bonded over. They've gone exclusive with Spotify now, and they are one of the biggest podcasts in the US. And I was like, yeah, uh, Spotify are serious um, about podcasting and about uh, trying to take over this space. So I don't know, who knows what will happen? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think you're right about Serial changing it as well. Even though, you know, I listened to Serial and I liked it. And I liked yeah. the production values of it. And I liked the way the story was told and the oh, way that they used the audio and the interviews. But I was very disappointed at the end. It didn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> I know. I think this is the thing that, um, especially as a true crime podcaster, I get. People's experience is always, I don't want a mystery. I don't want it to be left unsolved. I want you to give me the definitive answer. And I think the biggest thing Hannah and I come up with is that. And the thing we always say is, Sarah Koenig, what she does is investigative journalism. I'm like, we're not even investigative journalists, guys. We're just storytellers. We're just telling you this story with our own opinions thrown in. And while I agree, I do think that people always say, I don't like a mystery. I like a concluded case. Um, I like a definite answer. Our data, coming back to the data, doesn't prove that. It absolutely proves people love the contentious cases. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? Did she do it? Didn't she do it? Who did it? What's the mystery here? And I think maybe it's just because people get to have um, get to have more of that interactivity. And I do think actually people people pretend like they don't like a mystery, but I think that they secretly do. They must do, because you won an award. We'll talk more about your award that Red Handed won next week. Saruti Bala from Red Handed, which is at number 16 this week on the Pod 20. At 15, it's the Football Weekly from The Guardian. 14, Off the Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. They invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. 
Back to the chart in just a bit. Let's check in with my special guest this week, which is Rob Goldstone. You've spent a lot of time with Donald Trump, Rob. What's he like? He has a blustering sort of buffoon quality that when you're around him, makes you believe that he's your mate, he's your best friend, and he's looking out for you. I famously said on CNN, which I thought was funny, that he would run over you in his Rolls Royce to get to his gold-plated toilet in Trump Tower, and you would still vote for him and think he was your best friend. Because that's the ability he has. And I have to say, he's in the five or six times I met him, he's only ever been polite, gracious, done ridiculous things i asked him to do a video for emin's dad's birthday he did it at like seven o'clock in the morning i asked him to do a music video for emin at literally six or seven in the morning he did it we gave him one day's notice to do it and so i think he likes chaos and drama that, that was no question i think he is unfiltered and when people say to me now can you believe how donald trump behaves i'm like well, yes, have you ever seen Donald Trump? He behaves like Donald Trump. You mm. just thought you were electing somebody who would be different once they've been elected. He's always been that person. It's just magnified. So let's fast forward to June 2016 and this meeting that you've set up. The, the Trump camp are expecting dirt on Hillary. Uh, what happened next? Well... In the perfect storm, as they say, I was supposed to, of course, not attend, not be there, have no relevance. But I was supposed to go and introduce this this gang of merry men and one woman to Don Jr. Only because I'd met him a couple of times, they hadn't. And I thought that was a fair ask. So I met them at Trump Tower. I took them up in the elevator and handed them off to Don, who then said, well, where are you going? And I said, I'm leaving. He goes, oh, just stay. Now, again... In the same way as with Emin, you make those split-second decisions, which is, it's the son of someone who could become the future president of America. Asking you to stay, who cares? That was my thing. I can check my emails. What difference does it make? There's a good and a bad to that, because on the one hand, it put me in the center of the most famous meeting of at least the 21st century. <laughs> but there is something good for that, because if I hadn't sat in on that meeting and everything that came out about what people believed supposed went on well i might have been one of those people that also believed that it was much more sinister because i was sitting there i know what happened so i was kind of like as the Mueller team told me you're like a witness to a very serious accident we need to hear from you because you don't have any benefit on either side it wasn't your meeting you don't care but you were a witness to it so I told them the same as I'll tell you, which is, you know, it started out and this this attorney spoke about this damaging information to the Democrats. But her version of it was that these people named Bill Browder and the Ziff brothers had made donations to Hillary's campaign and they don't pay tax in Russia. So therefore, these were illegal donations. It should never have been done. It's outrageous and all of that. And how dare they give money to the Democrats? And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know those people, but didn't Donald Trump used to support the Democrats? I literally, it was amusing me. And I thought, well, anyway, she'll get to the point eventually. And then she rambled a bit. And Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was sat next to me. And I saw him fidgeting and he looked very uncomfortable. And he suddenly said to her, I have to stop you. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I thought, good, because I'd like to have said that. 
she then began from the exact place as if you're reading something really boring and someone said stop but she began it again and i could see him so tense that he was texting desperately we later learned that he was texting his assistant saying get me out of this madhouse basically and don jr was the next one to pipe up and said with the best will in the world i don't know why you're addressing this to us my father's a private citizen you should address it to the obama administration and she said what she really wanted to talk about was something called the magnitsky act i had never ever heard of it i'm since an expert on it and it's where because of sanctions imposed by uh, america on russia over somebody called sergey magnitsky who apparently was murdered by the kremlin because of i don't know what russia imposed an adoptions freeze and so when you hear things like that meeting was about adoption it was about adoption this lawyer was trying to get those sanctions removed because it was causing a lot of issues for families who wanted to adopt children and suddenly couldn't so if you've been waiting a year or two years and your child was now ready to you couldn't adopt a child from russia or the former soviet union because of these rules and so she was a lobbyist to have the magnitsky act overturned and the very people she was saying were doing something dodgy in their donations to Hillary's campaign were almost the writers, the creators of the Magnitsky Act. So it's all joined up. The media didn't bother to join up the dots. And they said, it's outrageous that Don Jr. said it's about adoption. How ridiculous. Sounded like a cover story. Sounded like a ridiculous cover yeah, story. Yeah, it was about adoption. And in fact, so much so that when the meeting was over, because Don ended the meeting, I jumped up and herded them out like cattle to get them out. I was hugely embarrassed. And it takes quite a bit to embarrass me. And he put his arm on my shoulder and I said, I have to just tell you, I've never been as embarrassed. And Don said to me, I just have no idea what that was about. And I said, adoption, apparently. And when we walked out of it, the only thing I would have, someone had put a gun to my head one year later, one minute, and said, what was that meeting about? I would have said, adoption. I just don't know why. And so it wasn't a lie. It was a half fact. When, when they asked him what it was about, what I believe he should have said was, it was about adoption, but we thought it was going to be about blah, blah, blah. What he kept saying was, it was about adoption. He didn't give it context. And as I've learned over this last few years, context is what matters. It was about adoption, but they went into it thinking it was about something completely different. I think it was a bit of a bait and switch. It wasn't a language issue. It was that um, to her and to President Vladimir Putin, Magnitsky is a huge thorn in their side. I say that because years later, he and President Trump stood together in Helsinki. They did some big meeting there. And one of the only things Putin talked about was the Magnitsky Act. And as I heard him talk about Bill Browd, I was like, wait, this is all these names that came up at my meeting that they're dismissing as nonsense. It's obviously not nonsense to Vladimir Putin. And if you're a lawyer that has some connection to the Kremlin, well, it is important. So just because somebody at the New York Post or the whatever doesn't understand the connection doesn't mean it was hugely important. And there was, when I say in my email, they have damaging information about Hillary, whatever. Well, there was damaging information about funding to her campaign, but it wasn't damaging because to the Trump campaign, 
who cares if they're donating? She cared because she wanted to say these horrible Magnitsky people who you support, or not you, who America support, are donating to Hillary's campaign, bad people. Mm. And, and that's why it made no sense. And that's why they stopped the meeting and said, this is a waste of time. Like, we don't even know what you're talking about. So it was a big jigsaw puzzle. It had lots of pieces. But the bottom line is the meeting lasted about 15 minutes. It was the most awful 15 minutes I've ever spent. And at the end of it, we went downstairs and I called Emin in the middle of the night in Russia and said, this was the single most embarrassing thing you've ever asked me to do. And you're someone that's asked me to do a lot of really, really embarrassing things. And I never want to speak about it again. And I hung up on him. And we never did speak about it again until the emails broke. It sounds like you just got caught up in all of this. And the Mueller report basically backs everything you've said. In fact, if it was some sort of covert meeting, you didn't even try to hide it. <laughs> you like had, didn't you have your Facebook? You, you, you... I did check in on Facebook and yeah. said meeting at Trump Tower. And I have to say <laughs> that the Mueller people did say, would we be writing because you have to understand when people interview like bob Mueller's people like congress they know the answer they just need you yeah. to say it yeah so when they said to me would we be right in thinking you weren't exactly keeping the meeting private what they wanted me to say i understood i said well i did check in on facebook they said thank you right. so it's most spies most puppets of putin don't say I'm about to put polonium in this man's sushi at the restaurant. I do hope they serve, you know, rice. It just doesn't happen. And, and part of the reason I checked in was because not only am I not politically a Trump supporter, but all my friends are radical diehard liberals. So anytime I ever saw Trump, mentioned Trump, they would go ballistic on social media. And I love that. So as I also told Mueller's people who laughed the way you are, I said, it just made me happy. It makes me a horrible person, but it made me happy. And so I love the idea of saying this time, not only am I walking past Trump Tower, I'm going to a meeting there. Hello. And it sent them ballistic. But again, it was a really good thing that I did it because it was another thing. They had this idea that it was this covert, you know, spy meeting. Well, you don't normally say, had a Starbucks up at Trump Tower going to the meeting at Trump Tower. You don't. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And it, it was kind of bizarre, to say the least. But that was the meeting. And even then, I thought nothing of it. The only thing I thought was, what a waste of time. And a few months later, after Trump had become president, Emin said, my dad would like you again to ask for a meeting. And this time, I was a bit wiser, not because of the content. I thought, I can't ask them again. They'll think I'm an idiot, a complete idiot. So I sent it on Thanksgiving or just before Thanksgiving Day. I knew no one would read it. And I sort of said, if you can or you can't. And I sent it to someone again that was very connected. I never heard. I never followed up. Usually, I follow up everything. And about three months after that, one of Emin's dad's colleagues said, this same lawyer will be back in the States and this and would like to meet. And this time I said, you have to stop asking. It was an appalling meeting. It was awful. And I won't do an ask. And they said, understood. And I never heard about it again. But there are people, still some people, who still think that you, uh, Rob Goldstone, are part of an illegal Russian conspiracy. What would you say to them? I would say get off Twitter because I've read these people. <laughs> you know, there are people who even today say 
We understand that Bob Mueller, who had $34 million, 16 attorneys, hundreds of investigators, the FBI, the CIA, the whatever, spent two years investigating this, came up with the idea that the meeting basically was a nothing. It shouldn't have taken place. And yes, they should have done it. But what they basically said was that Don Jr. was a bit too dumb with the best will in the world to know he shouldn't have done it. And therefore, there were no charges to bring against him. It also had nothing of any value to the campaign. Yeah, and it doesn't say that the Russians didn't collude. It just says, right. yeah. And I've never said that. The Russians might. But I also think, on some level, Britain's probably interfered in people's elections around the world. America's interfered in elections around the world. And Russia and China and whoever else. So, But that's not what was being discussed. Um, there are people on Twitter that say, forget Bob Mueller, forget Congress, forget this. They've missed it all. It's obvious. Here's Rob Goldstone's email. So, you know, Jack Smith sat in wherever Birkenhead thinks, actually believes that they have solved it. And it used to be that I used to try and calmly answer these people. There's no point. If you believe what you believe, then you believe it. What I now say to people is, it's a quote I stole. Now, I do get quotes wrong, so I'll try this one. It's a quote I stole from an old Democratic uh, congressman who said, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. And that's what I say to people. I don't care if you like me, hate me, think I'm a this, but you can't say that I am because it's not true. And that's, that's where I leave it. But yes, there are people that believe all those people missed the obvious and why because mine's in writing i have to say mine at one point was the only tangible piece of evidence of any russian collusion and i stated it in my book and i stated it many times publicly if the muller if the muller inquiry was going to believe that my email was a part of the cornerstone of russiagate there wouldn't be any collusion <laughs> because i know what that was about. and that is basically what it said yeah rob goldstone and uh, rob what a life you've had you're in new york city right now you've also lived in sydney australia you've worked with some of the biggest names in show business but you grew up in greater manchester i want to hear all about that in a bit back to the chart now and at number 13 the ezra klein show the winner of the 2020 webby and people's voice awards for best interview podcast at 12 it's girls on film the all-female panel talk about movies. One of them is Anna Smith, who you've probably seen critiquing films on the BBC. And you're also a regular on the junket circuit when the big stars come to town to sell their latest movie project. Which actor or director has given you the hardest time in an interview? I've got to say, I do understand that if you're being asked the same question 40 times a day by a whole line of In the people, third country this week. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. It must be exhausting. And I think it takes all the acting skills that some of these people have. But some of them are amazing. And if I'm doing them for Metro, which I quite often am, I mean, you normally get about 20 minutes, so that's not too bad. And you have a chance to get to know people and to relax okay. with them. Yeah. Um, as you say, 10 minutes is really, really fast. I don't know if I should name names, but that, I, I mean... I wish I, you would. <laughs> there are some... I would I would say that I have noticed a pattern, and, and I don't wish to sound prejudiced, but it does tend to be older male actors who are... They've obviously just been around the block one too many times, possibly making assumptions about a female interviewer, don't know. Um, but they, they can be very testy. Not all. Some are fantastic. But... I've had the most 
problems with people like that who just are very, very um, monosyllabic. Um, just they won't make any attempts for small talk. They're just kind of not even looking you in the eye, you know, and that and that's kind of rude. So yeah. there's, been, there's been a few of those. Yeah. Well, but, but the, the, pa the pattern is the older men. It, does the pattern have a nationality? Is it mostly Americans? Um, I have to say a few Brits actually have, have really? been. And an Austrian. There you go, there's a clue. Well, I know that is. I mean, they haven't <laughs> had that many, have they? Well, we're not going to say. Really? Hmm. <laughs> okay. Who was the most delightful? Oh, there's there's loads actually. Dev Patel is always lovely. I've interviewed him lots of times. Julianne Moore, um, Sigourney Weaver, um, Tom Cruise is actually really nice. Yeah, you know, so mm -hmm. most even though he's crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't comment on that. Okay. I didn't spend long enough with him to judge that. <laughs> he comes across as crazy. But, um, all right then, tell me about Girls on Film. So Girls on Film is an all-female podcast. We do occasionally have men on, but it's generally all women. And I founded it with Heather Archbold, our executive producer, in um, 2018. And the idea was to give a voice to female film critics and female filmmakers who are so often kind of ignored, or as you know, like on TV and on radio, so often it's male film critics. And I was finding that when I was going on TV, you know, you have a presenter and you have two guests and in the two film critics discussing something, and I was never paired with another woman. It was always with a bloke. But it was fine to have two blokes, but having two women, and especially as a female presenter, seemed to back them be, it would be sort of judged to be some kind of niche. So we wanted to show that you can have a very entertaining, fun film show with all women. Uh, so we launched that and I thought, okay, you know, we'll do this with female film critics. We talked about um, representation on screen. We have very lively reviews of upcoming releases. Um, you know, quite a light touch, but obviously looking at things from a fun feminist angle. And I thought, okay, let's try and get some actresses in here. And we weren't sure if any, any of them would come along or be interested. And by episode three, Kerry Mulligan asked to come on the show. And then since then, we've had like Linda Hamilton, we've had Maxine Peake several times. Um, we've got lots of great things coming up. There's so many big names have come on. So it's been really exciting, actually, to see the kind of response to that, um, because it's clearly struck a chord with people, um, women talking about film in a fun way. And the biggest compliment that we've had, which I've, I've been told by several men as well, is it makes them think about film differently. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's really lovely to hear. It's really important. Obviously, it's really important because the, the ratio, as you mentioned earlier, between the, the amount of male leads and female leads, it's like out of control, considering it should be 50-50 of it's to represent society, and it's nowhere near that. Um, but when they get it wrong, when they get the female thing wrong in the film, for me, it spoils it. Now, I watched that film, Richard Jewell. And I thought it was a good film, the Clint Eastwood film, but it was totally spoiled for me by the way that the female reporter was portrayed as this two-dimensional woman that could only get the information from the man by flirting with him. And it totally destroyed the film, for, an otherwise great film destroyed it, and I couldn't recommend the film because of that. Do you think that is something that Hollywood has a problem with or is that just a Clint Eastwood thing with him being an old white geezer? <laughs> yeah, Hollywood has a problem with it, yeah. Does I mean, it? Things are, things By are the getting... way, did you notice that too? I did, absolutely. I remember discussing it, I think, with another female film critic after I'd seen the film and we were saying, well, it was based on a true story so we were wondering, uh, maybe, you know, perhaps she did sleep with the guy to get the information but we, we really, you know, that was the only reason we think because otherwise you'd be 
potentially slandering someone. But it did seem to choose to focus on that as well, even if that were part of the story. Um, I would agree with you. And yeah, Clint Eastman often puts women to the, to the side of the story, definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a problem in Hollywood as long as forever. Um, it's getting slightly better since the whole Time's Up Me Too situation and the conversation's getting louder with things like Girls on Film. But yeah, I mean, there's an inherent problem in that um, when scripts are written from the outset, so often they revolve around a man because we've all been growing up with male-centered stories predominating the narrative and we've all been asked to um, relate to generally white men in the lead role nothing wrong with that you know we can all relate to that but then how about a little bit of variety you know so as you say reflect the world that we live in and also to help young kids um, of both sexes you know to understand the experience of what the other one's going through, you know? And I think that's why things like actually Frozen are really good because you've got little boys getting into that film and, you know, understanding the, and identifying with girls and not seeing them as other, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it, it's, it's changing, but really slowly. And what Gina Davis, um, she, she's obviously a wonderful actress, but also has a this kind of um, campaign that she calls See Jane, which they say, if she can see it, she can be it. And she's, campaigning for better representation particularly in children's films and family films because they're really important because that's the first thing that people are going to see and grow up with so she's campaigning to make people when they're at, at the stage of writing a script to think Hi, hang on what if i just switched the genders of the leads and what if i just made that man a woman and see how that goes so just to tackle the unconscious bias that a lot of people have but it's not just the script stage, obviously, then you've got the funding and then you've got the people telling the stories and most of the funding going, being doled out by men and then going to men and people hire people that look like them and so it perpetuates. Yeah. And the men usually get paid more than the women too. Yes, indeed. I mean, what's great is people like Jennifer Lawrence speaking out about that recently and um, that conversation again getting louder. And I think it's getting harder for people to get away with it. And um, what we like to celebrate on Girls on Film is when you see, you know, the good things happening, we don't kind of, you know, I'm sort of slightly kind of moaning now, but we don't really like to moan. We sort of celebrate the, the triumphs. And, and, you know, like Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins' film, obviously, was a huge success, massive movie. And that's helped pave the way to lots more upcoming superhero films directed by women. So, again, these kind of family-friendly mainstream movies, it's really important that they hire women to direct them and to write them and to star in them just as much as it is art house movies because those have such a big audience. Also, as well, if someone takes their clothes off in a movie, it's usually a woman. Yeah, the I mean, we all know that inherently, but when you actually look at the statistics around that, it is incredibly shocking. And yet, even in, in, this, in the studies Gina Davis did with family films, um, that you would often see, you know, the women wearing needlessly skimpy outfits while performing their jobs, you know, and that had nothing to do with wearing a skimpy outfit. So, you know, there is actually really, really shocking. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think just everyone being more aware of it's really important. And what we try to do on Girls on Film is to kind of gently highlight that and make, make people watch like you very responsibility with Richard Jewell you know just just kind of question what you're watching and just go hang on a minute look really you know is that right because we've been brought up with it for so long you know it can, it can take a while to actually notice that, that what you've been watching is actually quite damaging and quite offensive yeah and I think that's the same with a lot of things if you look at 70s TV you know most people are ashamed of what was on the TV with shows like Love Thy Neighbour and the black and white minstrel show, you know, as far as race goes. And, you know, it's the same thing with sexism, sexism as well. And when you, when you know better, you need to do better. And yeah. Yeah. 
we, we talk a lot about sort of intersectionality as well. And obviously we have a lot of women of color on the podcast because um, it's even greater challenge, obviously, for them in the film industry. And I think it's, yes, it's, it, these two, these arguments go hand in hand. And we also talked about the people with disabilities, it's representation. Yeah, any prejudice part against part. a yeah. part yeah. of society, it, it really, it's really, it's the same thing, just for slightly different reasons. Yeah. Now, there's a YouTube version of Girls on Film, as well as the audio version. Is the YouTube version exactly the same as what the audio is? No, so we were invited by the British Film Institute to do YouTube episodes with them um, during lockdown because they want, they were doing some BFI at home and they wanted to reach more people at home, obviously, because people couldn't come into the cinema. Um, so it's been really exciting to do that in conjunction with the audio podcast. So we still we still have our ordinary audio podcast. Oh, it's a separate thing altogether. Okay. It's a separate thing, but then often what we do is, and we have such great guests, like we've got Gemma Arston coming up tonight as we speak, who's going to be brilliant. Um, and then we we often run the audio of that on the podcast and cross cross reference the two, but they are two separate things. So yeah, we've we've basically gone visual, which is which is brilliant and and really exciting, and it's been great to zoom across the globe to people. You know, we had Billy Piper on the first one; she was amazing. And then Sally Phillips and Ronnie Ancona were an absolute hoot. So you know, we have some great people on. Well, the reason why I put this on YouTube as well, I mean, I, we yeah. Zoom because of, of lockdown and, and whatever, and yeah, it's exactly. easier, and more people yeah. are available from home than if you ask them to come into the studio in London. Oh, yeah. So it's it's just easier. And I made the decision at the very beginning when we started doing this to put the Zooms on YouTube pretty much unedited because yeah. I realized so many more people have got time to watch video than they used to. <laughs> Exactly. You know, that you, a podcast are great, and, and fewer people commuting, which is where a lot of podcast yeah. listening goes on, and I wanted it to be a cross-platform. Have you noticed since lockdown, have you been, well, <laughs> you, you mightn't have been doing it, I just want to know, have you noticed that the, the video version of it is getting more um, of an audience, and the during lockdown maybe the audio version it, it's 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 fewer yeah i think youtube's gone really well and what's interesting was also instagram igtv people have been really engaged with them on there so they've been trying different ways of reaching people um so yeah they all complement each other i think i think they do anna smith the podcast is called girls on film it's at number 12 this week at number 11 on purpose with jay shetty fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world jay's latest guest is gwyneth Paltrow. At 10, Spencer and Vogue. Spencer Matthews and Vogue Williams let you into their lives, hear what they're doing, thinking and disagreeing on every week. Back to the chart in just a sec, but let's catch up with my special guest now, Rob Goldstone. You grew up in the northwest of England, in Bury or Bury, as it's pronounced up there. It was pretty normal, pretty average. I grew up in a working class council estate in Whitefield, just outside Bury. And, you know, I went to a, a very odd school. I actually went to a school originally at one point called Delamere Forest School for Delicate Jewish Children, which I find, <laughs> I mean, you have no chance, right? Ever in life. But that was the name of the school. Thank God they closed it down after 150 years. And, um, and then I went to um, a, a regular comprehensive school where when I was about 16, we had a careers day and everyone was saying you know i want to be a baker i want to be a plumber i want to be a whatever and they came to me and i said i want to be a journalist and they said you can't and i thought well that's handy so i left and i told the headmaster i was never coming back to the school and in fact i didn't and what i did instead was i applied i'd seen an ad for a trainee sports reporter on the local newspaper i applied for it i knew nothing about sport and i got the job much to my shock i got the job and 
The other thing I didn't tell them, but I always used to laugh at them and say, you didn't actually ask, but you had to be 18 because part of it was you went on this NCTJ, this journalism course, and you had to be 18. So they assumed anyone who was doing this was at least 18. And when it all came out about six months later that I wasn't, because I was actually then 16 and a half, um, it was too late because they already liked what I'd done and I'd got into it. And not only was I the trainee sports reporter, I was the only sports reporter. So, you know, uh, as you know, you get into a situation where you become good if you like what you're doing. I loved what I was doing. And I was a journalist. That was it. And maybe I did it to spite Elliot Weisberg, who was the name of the careers teacher. But maybe I did it to spite the school. I have no idea. But I liked it. I enjoyed it. And you went from newspapers to local radio. I want to find out all about that in a little bit. Rob Goldstone. Back to the chart now, and at number nine, it's Freakonomics Radio, Discover the Hidden Side of Everything, with Stephen J. Daubner, the co-author of the Freakonomics books. At eight, BJ Shea's Geek Nation. BJ, you host the breakfast show on KISW in Seattle, Washington, but you grew up in Boston. How did you get into broadcasting? Let's go right back to the beginning. I uh, way back to the beginning. You know, you're, you know, it's about to be my 60th birthday. You're asking me to remember a lot of years ago. <laughs> That's, uh, I don't know how fair that is. I might need a little time. <laughs> Good thing this is. Oh, you can't see. It. Oh, you can't, never mind. I'm drinking an invisible drink. This background. Anyway, back to the question. Yeah. Um, Where yes, did you start? How did you get uh, into radio? I didn't know that I was doing radio as a child. Uh, I, uh, I I really I really was fascinated by entertainment, and I uh, and uh, back in the days of cassette recorders, and you could buy these portable cassette recorders, and I would tape theme theme music from all my favorite television shows i would get a friend of mine and we would act them out uh and make all of these on one cassette playing the music from the other cassette it was very bad you know nowadays you have all these great wonderful editing machines but this was the uh, diy version of that but i didn't know i was doing radio i was just doing these things playing it for my friends we would do super eight movies the eight millimeter things and recreate stuff and uh, I would call into local radio shows to win uh, sporting event tickets. Uh, and uh, I was a young boy, and they never wanted to put you through on these radio talk shows because you, you know, I tried to lower my voice as much as possible. Uh, and, but, uh, and I would do these just ridiculous impressions of local celebrities. Uh, and then I found out that if you call into the late, late shows, nobody's listening and calling, so they have to put you through because they have nobody else. And, I, and so I would call into the late, late shows, and hopefully my parents wouldn't know that I was, uh, that I was out of bed. And uh, just before I would get yelled at, I'd go, hey, Dad, I won us two baseball tickets, though. How about that? And he'd be like, really? You won two baseball tickets? And, you know, then when they would be mailed to me, he'd be like, okay, all right, you know what? Maybe you should stay up a little bit more and try to win us some more sporting event tickets. So, so unlike a lot of people who first get into radio, you were being paid at the very beginning of your career. <laughs> yes, I was. I, I was what they call a prize pig. Right. I, uh, yeah, I would call every radio station. I was as loyal to anybody that would give me anything. Um, and I, I, um, I, I eventually... I didn't. I thought I was going to be an artist, like a literal cartoonist artist, because in those days, you, you know, people couldn't break your heart and tell you that you couldn't draw. Rather, they would let you take your portfolio around to different colleges and be laughed out of every one of them. And eventually, one college just said to me, 
are you, why are you bringing this anywhere? This is horrible. And I, and I didn't know. I mean, I just thought, well, I mean, my art, my art teacher said I was great. And, um, but I realized that what was, and I was told by this one guy, he says, you know, I'll tell you this, your cartoon, the, the drawings are horrible, but the material is pretty good. So I actually like the joke. I go, <laughs> it looks like a four-year-old drew this. Uh, and that's when I realized, oh, all right, so I am creative. I have to find another outlet. Uh, and uh, then at that, and then I found a, I had to go to college undeclared because you had to go to school. You know, that was the, you better go to college. You'll never be anything, which I'm not sure that's a great message anymore. But I went and they had a radio station. So I thought, oh, well, this, I, I like the radio. And the, there was a guy I always loved listening to uh, in Boston uh, who's basically doing what I'm doing right now at the time. And um, who was it? It was Charles Lacordera, um, a great Boston radio personality. He was an actor, couldn't get a job in California, decided that radio would help him until he could get to be an actor, and then eventually realized actually radio was a great career and just stayed with it. Um, he has the fame of selling Oprah, one of her homes in Hawaii. Uh, so not only did he have a great radio career, but I have a feeling he made a good value on the home he sold to Oprah. <laughs> um, he was one of the idols I got to meet, um, which was fun because I I interviewed him early on for when I was at a, a college at, at college and I interviewed him, and it was a horrible interview. Uh, he was just like <laughs> I came with no questions. I was literally that starstruck fanboy. Yeah, I don't remember that Chris Farley piece on Saturday Night Live talking to the Beatles. Well, oh, you playing? <laughs> and he just looked at me like what are you doing? Get out of my studio. You'll never be in this business. And I had that all on cassette. It was a funny interview, <laughs> but I, he ruined me. But I played it back for the class. The whole class laughed. The teacher hated it. And I remember the teacher saying, you know what? You, this is the, you, he made you a fool. You were a jerk. And I remember sitting in that class. And when he had said that, but I thought, but everybody's laughing. I said, this was successful. Yes, I was the butt of the joke, but he couldn't have been successful in making everybody entertained. The audience I, liked it, and that's yes, who it was for. If, if I didn't play my part. So I knew then that this teacher who basically was a frustrated broadcaster and had to teach on the side because he just didn't have a great broadcasting career, I realized that's something he doesn't get. He doesn't get that if you're a performer, it doesn't matter if you're the hero or the villain. If people like it, it doesn't matter. And that's what I held on to. I said, this was good. <laughs> you know, I should be better, no doubt about it. I will be a better interviewer. But this was good. And uh, Graham, probably, ooh, I would say 30, 30 years later, during my 10th anniversary here in Seattle, they got Charles Lacodera to be on the show with me. Oh, and how cool. As a surprise. And they played the audio for him, uh, which this poor man, you know, 40, he's, this is 40 years or so later, however it was for him. He's, he's in his 60s. He's listening to him be really cruel to me. And you could hear his voice. He's just like, oh, oh. You know. And then finally he said, look, I don't know if you knew this, but I had a horrible cocaine addiction back then, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> but he ended up being very gracious and kind, and he said, if you're ever in Hawaii, please come visit me. And I took him up on it. I actually yeah. went out there, and he, you know what? He, he said, hey, come on over. And we had a great conversation. Um, and talk about meeting one of your idols. He was the reason I got in the industry. I, I, I loved everything he did. Um, and he was very nice and very gracious because 
was, he was, he said, I can't believe that you're making it, you know, this business is even tougher than when I was in it and you have a successful show. Good for you. And, and of course it was a show just like he had. So he, he smiled and he said, so yeah, you're really doing just pretty much what I was doing in Boston. I said, yeah, uh, I think you were doing it better, Charles, but yeah, I'm pretty much doing what you were doing in Boston. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's pretty much how I got started. I'm glad you did. BJ Shea and BJ's Geek Nation is at number eight this week on the pod 20. At number seven, it's Grounded with Louis Theroux. Six is No Such Thing as a Fish, the award-winning podcast from the QI offices. Let's check in with my special guest now, the host of An Englishman In, the podcast from Rob Goldstone. Rob, you grew up in the northwest of England. You got into papers at your local paper. Then what happened? Uh, And then I moved on to weekly papers, daily papers. I went to Birmingham, to the Birmingham Post and Mail. Um, I freelanced in London on Fleet Street. I worked for The Sun and The Sunday Mirror. And then I got into radio, which was my kind of true love. And I I worked for Radio City and for Piccadilly and for LBC. And then I worked for BRMB in Birmingham for a a long time. BRMB is is a station I worked at for for quite a long time as well. I think what's that? Were we there together? No. No, I wasn't there until I went there in 99 and left in about 2002. So actually, you say a long time. It was a long time for commercial yeah. radio uh, but yeah that was uh, that was that was my time there well when I, I first went there we were in Aston and we moved to Broad Street when I was there so we were near the HP source factory yeah um, but that which, which I have for someone who I only have um, one hate in life uh, I, well I have two I hate the word collusion but I also hate all condiments so I have an aversion to them so if you can imagine going to work every day with that smell of HP source that was a nightmare but yes I love my time in Birmingham and at BRMB. And you managed to take Muhammad Ali to BRMB to that very studio by the HP Source factory. In their beaten up old radio car, I did. <laughs> I had um, I'd got assigned to cover Ali, who was visiting a boys, a boys club in Handsworth that had just started a boxing uh, club. And it was amazing. First of all, the idea that Muhammad Ali would be coming to spend two days. Imagine two days. Now, like Kim Kardashian spends 10 minutes somewhere. Two days he spent visiting with, naming the center after him and all that. It was amazing. So I said to you, I said, this job's me. It's got me written all over it. I'm done. I'm doing this. And I literally moved in there. I befriended everyone. I was friendly. I I went there a week or two out. and, And so they all would know me. And it was with a view to getting an interview with Muhammad Ali. Nobody knew if he would say one word, two words, no words. And... The first day he was great. He said little bits of things that, you know, used to mumble a bit and say things. And I I knew uh, being in radio, you can chop that together, do your own report. And there you go. And on the way out, there was a very famous sports editor named Tony Butler. And he said to me, I bet you don't get an interview with Muhammad Ali. And I was like, no, I will. And he said, oh, you, I think he said something like, oh, it's a shame he can't be in my show. And Tony had a sports show the next day on the Friday. Fine. So I go there and the first day I got bits of it. And one of the things I said to Ali after spending a day, I was like, I'd love to do an interview with you. And he said, tomorrow. I thought, okay, he's gonna be here tomorrow. So the next day I go back and on my way out from the station, I said to Tony Butler, I'm gonna get you that interview. And you know, again, you're under pressure. This must've been about 10 or 11 in the morning. He's on at four in the afternoon. It's like, okay. But the idea was I would get it, race back to the station and do something with it. 
And Ali wasn't that communicative, I have to say, that day. And I thought, he's never doing this thing. So I kind of went for it. And I just said to him towards the end of the afternoon, remember that interview you said you would do? Yeah. And I was ready to say, well, let's sit down here. And he goes, you got a car? And I said, yes. And he goes, then let's go and do it. And it clicked that he thought it was live in the state. Oh, live or not live. It was in the studio. I was like, sure. So I drove Muhammad Ali in the beaten up white with that red BRMB on it. News car, an old Ford Escort to Aston, parked in the back, not even in the front, in the back of the car. And then we walked. Now, those were days before cell phones or anything. <laughs> so it wasn't like I'm dialing up saying, guess who I got? <clears throat> so I walked in with Muhammad Ali and I knew what I had to do. We just barged into the studio and Tony had his little panel of people. And it was one of the only times I ever saw Tony Butler speechless, number one. And Muhammad Ali sat down. He's live on air. Hour, live on air for an hour, answer questions. And when he left, Tony Butler was shocked. And my news editor at the time was a guy called Brian Shepard, just simply said, you do have more front than Brighton. <laughs> but it worked, though, and it led on to bigger and better things. You ended up working with some massive names, including Richard Branson and Michael Jackson. We'll find out more about that next week. Rob Goldstone from the podcast An Englishman In. This is the Pod 20, the only podcast countdown that matters and at number five this week it's revisionist history malcolm gladwell's journey through the overlooked and misunderstood at number four you're dead to me the history podcast for people who don't like history number three is hollywood and levine from the hollywood scriptwriter ken levine ken is also a baseball commentator and announcer and when we talked to you last week ken you were talking about how you moved you and your wife to Syracuse, New York for a summer to uh, do baseball commentary and announcing there. Your wife didn't like that. Where did you go to from there? From there, I moved to Tidewater, which is the Mets AAA affiliate, and that was Virginia Beach, which was a resort. And that I was able to sell as San Diego with humidity. Right. <laughs> and uh, did that for a couple of years, and there was an opening with the Baltimore Orioles. And to make a long story short, I sent in my tape and I got the job. And it's that, it's that easy? You send in your tape from, you put together <laughs> no, like a 90, greatest hits no, or something? No, nine, 94 people uh, send in their tapes. Wow. Um, yeah. So no, you send it's, them all it's, your it's best stuff, easy. all the home runs and everything? Yeah, I see. I send like a half inning, an exciting half inning. And I had met John Miller, who was the voice of the Orioles, when uh, at the end of the season I was in Anaheim, still recording more sample games. And I gave him one just to listen to. I said, would you listen to this and critique it for me? And he said, sure. And I gave him the tape and had my phone number on it. And and like a few weeks later, I get a call. And it's John Miller. And he said, there's an, an opening with the Orioles. I listen to your tape. You're terrific. Why don't you send the tape? So I was like, uh, okay. So I did. I sent a tape to the radio station, to WBAL, and um, th they, I, I spoke to the program director, and he said, so what are you sending me? And I said, uh, an exciting half inning of Angel Baseball. And he said, okay, send me that, but also send me three uninterrupted, complete innings where nothing happens. Right, because that's where you learn your money. And I like... Um, 
okay. So I did. And I was a finalist and they flew me out to Baltimore and I met with John and met with uh, all of the people at the radio station. And they said, okay, great. We'll let you know in a week. And a week went by and I heard nothing. And, you know, by day nine, 10, it's like, okay, but I didn't get it. Oh, well, we got a free trip to Baltimore out of it. And then like another few days later, I got the call. And when I got the call then, I thought, okay, this is the courtesy call because it's been two weeks. So they're saying we went another way, but thank you. And we enjoyed your tape and we enjoyed meeting you and best of luck to you. When they called and said, we're prepared to offer you the job, I was like floored. Yeah, because that's big time. Yeah. Yeah, really. That's that's the major leagues. And when you're calling a baseball game, who are you imagining you're calling it for? Like a, a, a hardened sports nut, like a mega fan of the team? It's really a good question, Graham. And the answer is no. I picture somebody, I think, very different than any other baseball announcer I know. I picture a 35-year-old woman listening. Really? Yes. See, I figure the hardened baseball fan is going to listen to you no matter what you do. Okay? Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. And if they hate you, they're still going to listen. They don't care. Yeah. They just, they want to hear the ball game. But women, so I picture a 35-year-old woman, she sort of knows the game, but doesn't know really the fine points, okay? So I don't have to, like, explain to her what a pitching change is or what a bunt is, but I do have to explain to her sacrifice fly and the infield fly rule and various other strategies that go on in a baseball game. I have to explain to her the difference between hit and run and run and hit. So, you know, I, I use that as, as a yardstick. And the other thing that, that I do, because I, I really see baseball as, as a story. And I see my job as an announcer, not just reporting balls and strikes, but telling you a story for three hours. And stories unfold emotionally. And these are real human beings playing this game. And they all have their desires, they all have their frustrations, their insecurity. There's all the issues of the import of this particular game or how important it is to a player to do well in this game. Otherwise, he's going to be sent back down to the minors. And so I really wanted to focus on the personalities of the players and make sure that the players were real living human beings and not just bobbleheads mm. to people. And women tend to respond more to uh, emotional stories than men. I so believe you may get letters. So th that's what I did. I imagined that I was uh, broadcasting to a 35-year-old, you know, housewife, mother of a couple of young kids, uh, maybe has a job, goes to two or three actual games a year. But, you know, if, if, I, can, if I can hook her and I can make the game interesting to her, then I, I think 
it, it can be interesting to everybody. And after Baltimore, I went to Seattle. We had terrible teams in Seattle. <laughs> and <laughs> we had terrible teams in Baltimore when I was there, too. My lifetime record in the major leagues is like 36 and 784. But when we're on the road and we're playing a night game, when I'm with the Seattle Mariners and we're playing a night game on the East Coast in Boston or New York or Toronto or Detroit, well, that game is coming on at 4.30 in the afternoon right during rush hour traffic in Seattle. And if the Mariners are losing 7 to nothing in the third inning against Cleveland, why the hell is anybody going to be listening to that game? Yeah. Unless... I make it entertaining. Yeah. Unless I find things to do, unless I use my humor, unless I tell stories, talk about baseball history, anything I can to make the game interesting because I realize that this is prime drive time, you know, radio. Yeah. And I have a captive audience. Yeah. Okay, they can't just turn me off. They can turn away to something else. But if they're stuck in the car and, and I'm entertaining them and the time is going by quickly for them, then they're going to stick with me. They don't care if it's 7 to nothing, Cleveland. It's all about writing. That's what it is. That's what the gig is. Yes. People say, what's the difference between telling a story uh, at a baseball game and telling a story when I'm writing? And the answer is quite simply that in baseball, I can't rewrite the ending. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have I have to go with what it is. <laughs> Ken Levine and his podcast Hollywood and Levine is at number three this week on the Pod 20. Ken will be back next week to reveal the real reason why people become comedy writers. At number two, it's the Joe Rogan Experience. Joe's latest guests have included the former CIA contractor turned whistleblower Edward Snowden. Which brings us to the top of the chart. And at number one... For the third week in a row, shagged, married, annoyed with Chris and Rosie Ramsey. That's it for episode 21 of the Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Rob Goldstone, Saruti Bala, Anna Smith, Ken Levine, and BJ Shea. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week's special guest is Johnny Gould, the host of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Johnny, you're an old radio dog. What do you think of the state of British radio right now? For 24 years, I ran sports media and business media, which was a news agency providing bespoke bulletins to local radio stations all over the country. Um, and it survived because of the diversity of marketplace. So there was always a global radio station in the city. And there was a Bauer station, usually in the northwest, uh, northeast of, of, of the country. And then there was the local radio group of maybe three or five or 10 or even 15 radio stations. All of them, all of them were swallowed up, which meant that the uh, sports media business model became defunct. Actually, uh, I was very fortunate enough to do a deal with global radio uh, where we covered all the gold radio stations. So we had all the AM and DAB classic music radio stations in every city of the country and some of the FM 
um, radio stations too. But now that business model has gone. And I've got to say, probably like you, Graham, if we were starting out aged 18 again, we would never be able to repeat our journey into radio. We would have never been able to train. I've watched videos of broadcasters half my age saying, I've been on this Barnsley station now for 10 years. I want to thank uh, everyone. I'm a Barnsley man. I'm sorry that I won't be here on Saturday. It's greatest hits radio, etc. And I really feel sorry for them because local radio is needed. And I think it's vandalism. I do. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, there has been too much uh, over-consolidation. Uh, and if we truly want to calibrate the economy around the country, we need to provide local radio, which can be regulated and funded on FM and DAB alongside of Greatest Hits and Smoother, which I was a part of, uh, etc. And uh, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not ashamed or afraid to say that. And when I'm on podcast radio, uh, working with you, with, with Gene the Bean, with Paul Chandler and Jerry, uh, it's partly because not only am I happy to be uh, brothers in arms with you guys, uh, with, with a product to share, but also that you're the true entrepreneurs that I remember growing up together in radio as we did uh, in our 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond. Johnny Gould, who'll be my special guest next week on the Pod 20. And what will happen on the chart next week? Will Shagged, Married, Annoyed still be at number one, making it four weeks at the top? Will your favourite podcast be right up there? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.